Well, good morning, family. It's good to be back with you. Even if Jay is gone and you have to deal with me, uh, it's one of those, you know, what, what are you going to do? And you've heard the passage. It's a familiar story, right? I, I love it when I get the chance to pick. Jay, Jay, I was like, do you have anything in mind? And he, he, he said a couple things. I'm like, okay, I'm going to go with this. And as you can tell, I'm also stuck in the Old Testament. Uh, who, who knew that that happens from time to time? But the book of Daniel has so much stuff. But this story in particular, if you think back to it, how many of you grew up in Sunday school and you walked through that program? Did you hear this story every year? And if you were me, you watched it on a flannel graph, you know, they stuck the little popsicle stick people up there, and it was awesome, and you looked forward to that all year. But it's a story that's so familiar, we miss out on some of the deeper truths that are contained within. And uh, that's, that's what we're going to hit today. That's part of why I chose this passage, because for those of us who've grown up in the church, it's kind of a touchstone. It's something everybody knows, the story of, well, I'll quote the Veggie Tales, Rack, Shack, and Benny in the Fiery Furnace. You know, I mean, especially, you got to love the names. You know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those are the top 10 list of, that's what I'm going to name my kids this year, right? Austin, Kaylee, that's what you're going for? <laughs> but we miss out if we just see the surface and we get that first part because it's so familiar, we know what's coming. That's part of why I picked the middle part of the passage. If you notice as we read it, it starts, you don't have the background. You don't have the end. We all know the end, and we're going to talk about it. But it's because we know it, we have to stop and think about it. Because if I were to ask you what a cultural touchstone was, what's something that you had crystallized in your mind that everybody around you would know the same we have some that we could point to. I mean, depending on your generation, maybe it was when JFK was assassinated. You know exactly where you were when that news broke. Or when people landed on the moon. Or moving forward, when the planes hit the towers in New York on 9-11. Those are some cultural touchstones that everybody knows. But there's other things that infiltrate culture. Like, if I were to give you some movie lines, you know, Toto, I have a feeling... We're not in Kansas anymore. You know, we all know that. I, I picked that on purpose because, you know, we're in Kansas and we can do that. But, or, you know, if, if, you're, if you're a Disney person and you're a parent, if somebody starts, just keep swimming. Just keep swimming. It's Dory and she's rolling and she does her thing. Or if, if you're more into superheroes, with great power comes great responsibility. Those movie lines resonate, and there are things that stick there. I thought of a few others, but some of them contained words, you know, like, frankly, my dear. And I'm like, no, we're going to cut that one out. <laughs> no, no, no going there. It's one that we all would know. But those touchstones are things that unite people. Just like for me, I'm from Oklahoma. I grew up in Norman. And there is one thing more than anything else that tells me it is Christmas. And if you've been in the Oklahoma City metro... That earworm has probably been stuck in your head at least once. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, Casey's laughing because he knows. Mariah. Mariah knows. But it's one of those, it's the B.C. Clark Jewelers jingle. It's been going forever. It was my parents and my grandparents. But it starts, you know, Christmas is the time to give. So give the gift that gives and lives at B.C. Clark's. And you, you hear it and you're like, ah, it's Christmas. Anybody from the Oklahoma City Metro knows that, and it's stuck in your head because they start playing it November 28th. 
And it plays until the end. And it's a touchstone that everybody there knows. One of the cool things about the God we serve is he created a lot of cultural touchstones for his people. These are things that were there to remind them. And they may be foreign to us, but God gave them to the people so that as soon as they heard part of it or they saw it, they would remember. Like for any Jew, all they had to do was hear the word Shema Yisrael. That's the beginning of Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. All they had to do was hear that. Hear, O Israel. They prayed it twice a day at least. Everybody knew it. It brought back those memories. The same thing. They have current Jews put mezuzahs on their doorpost. We have one too because it's the law. It's what God gave us. But it's there to be written on your doorpost so that as you come, as you go, it reminds you who you serve. Cultural touchstones cross those divides and bring us together. This story is one of them because we all know it. But do we really know what God wanted to tell us in this story? That's the tough part. And it's presumptuous. I'm a presumptuous guy. Welcome, welcome to that. But I think this is something we need to hear because the first and simple truth conveyed in this passage is that taking a stand starts a long time before you take a stand, right? We all know that. It's a conviction. If you don't stand for something, you'll fall for anything. Taking a stand starts way back. And that's why in our story, we don't see the background unless we know the culture and the history of the Jewish people. And that's why we're going to look at Deuteronomy 6 for a minute. Because this is the passage. It starts, listen Israel, which is Shema Yisrael in Hebrew. I'll put on my education. I have a degree in paper. It says I'm smart. But it starts, listen Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and with all your strength. These words I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. You're to bind them on your forehead the next part right I think I didn't put that in my notes I'm skipping and going from my head is the next part of the passage in there right did I do that good because I didn't write it down I, I trusted my brain and now I'm like oh there we are I skipped part repeat them to your children talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road when you lie down and when you get up and then he says write them on your doorposts bind them as a sign on your head let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on the doorposts of your house and on your city gates. It's all about finding ways to remember. Because how easy is it to forget things? Now, ladies, some of you will resonate with this. Does your husband forget where he puts things and then blame you? No? Is that just me? <laughs> it's, it's that moment I'm like, man, where, where is my wallet? Somebody had to... No, it's, it's right where I left it. Or like maybe you're like me and you have to shell out almost 200 bucks to get back into your car. And when you do and you have access to the trunk, do you know what you find in the trunk of said, yeah, I didn't even tell you that, oops. Duh. You know what you find in the trunk of said car? Oh, the, the keys that you so conveniently, whoops, locked in said car. <laughs> and you think you know where they are. And you think you know, but you don't. That's part of the human condition. God knew that. And so he gave his people all of these signs and these symbols to remind them of who he was. 
It builds a foundation. That's just like there's one promise probably every parent in this room knows from Scripture. Train up a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they will not depart from it. It's that foundational piece, and it starts early. That's why God's thing in Deuteronomy 6 was for parents. Teach it to your kids when you come, when you go, when you lie down to sleep, when you eat. It's woven into all of life in God's plan. But many times we segregate things off. And this is one of those, I'll go to psychology for a minute. They say guys are like waffles and girls are like spaghetti. Have you heard that before or just, you know, registered in my brain? I get it. I'm very good at compartmentalizing my life into this area here. Does not have to touch this area here or that one. Whereas my wife, this point here, it connects to stuff that I'm like, that's completely unrelated. Then we're back here and I didn't even realize we were still having that conversation. I was like, what? I thought we were talking about something else. Well, we were, but it relates. We have a danger in creating compartmentalized faith. What I mean by that, there are a lot of people in this country who claim the name Christian. In fact, Casey was posting something on Facebook the other day. Jay had commented, and then I tossed in my research because I was working on this. Do you know what percentage of America claims Christianity? Just any guess. Ballpark? It used to be close to 80 as of 2019, 65% of Americans claim to be Christian. My question to you today, church, does our country look like 65% of America knows Christ? Who? I see things every day that make me go, oh, what? Who? Mm. We claim it, but we don't know it. That's why growing up, our university minister, Bum always talked about CEOs. And no, he did not mean chief executives. He meant Christmas and Easter only, because that's when we showed up. And those were people who I didn't know. When I graduated high school in Norman, my class was around 3,000. And at our church, we had two, 300 students who were graduating. Our youth group at Max, with everybody who was there on a Sunday, was maybe two, 300, not just the seniors. And that Sunday morning, there were people who showed up. I'm like, you've been a part, what? No, I, I grew up here. How were how you a part of our church? But they were connected because they thought. And there's a truth. If we don't lay the right foundation, you know what we get? The results that laying the wrong foundation looks like. Jesus said simply, if you build your house on the rock, it's going to stand. If you build your house on sand, it's going to fall. We know that. For example, you're not going to take somebody who slept at the Holiday Inn and maybe a rocket, surgeon, a rocket scientist and ask him to be your surgeon, right? You're not going to do that. Same thing's true. You don't necessarily want your surgeon to be the guy designing the rocket if he has no clue about rocketry. Specialization helps, but we're not going to cross over. Our foundation is set based on what we do. God gave us a foundation in his word of daily reminders. Ways to put it into our head and to put it into our hearts because we're dense. Hi, I'm Matt. I am a dense human being who doesn't understand and has to have it knocked into my head regularly. If you're not, God bless you. But if you're like me, God prepared for that. The Old Testament is full of his faithfulness in the ways he showed his people and in the way he plowed the soil, so to speak, to grow the plants he was aiming to grow. And that's why Deuteronomy 6 is that touchstone. It brings it all back together. 
But see, the thing is, knowing what we believe creates that foundation. I dedicated more than 20 years of my life to youth ministry. And in doing so, I encountered some fun things. I mean, there's lots of great stories I could tell you have no bearing on what we're doing today. But there's so many things I could say, and Scott's heard some of them. I'm like, yeah, don't worry. You haven't done that. You're fine. But in doing so, I encountered a lot of resistance. Part of that is because on average, right now today, you're looking at around 70% of kids who are active in a church through high school leave. Some of them will come back, but not all of them. In fact, there's some pertinent stats. I just want you to hear these. Let it sink in because this is about foundational truth. One out of nine students who are active in a church lose their faith in college. One out of nine. That's 11%. Four out, uh, four. Four out of every 10 leave the church but still call themselves Christian. They keep the affiliation, but they lose the substance. Two out of 10 disconnect from the church and express frustration about church culture and disconnects with society. The toughest one, three out of 10 stay involved in the church. That's, you know, 30%. But you know what? There's good news in all that. Friends of mine worked for a study at Fuller Youth Institute out in California looking at why students stay connected to a church. Out of those three, the 30%, two of those had at least five meaningful relationships with an adult in the church. Two out of three had five meaningful relationships with another adult in the church. That's somebody who's in their corner, somebody who's with them, and you know what that guarantees? that they're going to stay because they're connected to God's people, not the pizza parties or paintball or whatever it was. I had people who'd always ask me every summer, Scott, just wait, this is coming. You come back from mission trip, you're completely exhausted. Somebody's asked ask you how you enjoyed your vacation. Trust me, it's coming. I remember those. You get back from Mexico after building half of a church in the hot 140 degree sun and it's well, you're ready to get back to work? <laughs> Just smile. Just smile. But the reason I say that is because as a church, are we laying the foundation well in the most important resource in the world? Kids. Are we? Because that foundation is what carries. And it's not just about information. It's not just that recall. It's not just me being able to say, Daniel in the fiery furnace, man, I know that story. The lion's den, you know, take your pick. It's about what's in my heart that's going to change me that is the foundation. That's why we're going to start in Daniel 1. I'm going to give us the backstory. Another Sunday school story we've heard. Daniel and these guys are kidnapped out of Israel once they're conquered by the Babylonians. Nebuchadnezzar wants the best and the brightest, and he brings them to Babylon to train them to serve. And so then it picks up in Daniel 1, verse 8. Daniel determined he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine he drank. Why? The Jews had guidelines given by God for their benefit. That's why no pork. I know there are people who are crying. No pork. Couldn't eat shrimp. There were a lot of things that God did for his people's benefit. And he has all these down and all the dietary restrictions. Now notice, who, who is it who's making the decision? Daniel. 
Whereas then we see the three names at the end there. So Daniel goes to the guard whom the chief eunuch had assigned to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Also known as Rakshak and Benny, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Daniel says, please test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then examine our appearance and the appearance of the young men eating from the king's table and deal with your servants based on what you see. Daniel wants to stick to what had stuck in him. Did you see that? It wasn't Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's Daniel who's carrying the load. Because Daniel's leading the way. I mean, I can't tell you there that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are leading the charge for what God had said and been laid in their hearts. Did they have that conviction? Maybe. Daniel might just have drugged them along and said, hey, these three Jews here are with me. Wouldn't you love to be those guys? <clears throat> you all of a sudden go to the feast and they're like, well, here's some boiled carrots. You have a great day. Everybody else is sitting over there and you're staring at the giant. Oh, that'd be rough if I didn't want that choice. But Daniel leads the way and he drags his three friends along. Now, there are other people who've been dragged along. How many of you are familiar with good old Paul Harvey, right? If you were like me, I grew up working with my dad and at lunch, the radio would be on and you'd always hear the story. Things you didn't know and then it winds up and so now you know the rest of the story. Today, we're kind of getting into that mode because there's a name I guarantee you that nobody in this building knows, probably. We're going to find out. Does anybody know who V. Raymond Edmund is? Anybody? Any takers? Any takers? Not my family. You don't count. <laughs> nobody knows the name Raymond Edmund. In fact, if you didn't go to Wheaton College or you're not a student of a certain evangelist, you probably have no clue who this guy is. But I'll tell you something. He's indirectly responsible for millions of people finding faith in Jesus Christ. He's the guy who kind of led the way for somebody else, like Daniel led the way for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Raymond Edmund was the president at Wheaton College in 1940 to 1965. As he was coming in to be president... He, his brother, and some of the board members from Wheaton were at a revival in Florida, and they heard a young preacher speak. And Mr. Edmund was convinced by his brother and this board member that they should try to hire that young pastor as their caddy to golf the next day. And so he goes out to golf with them, and they make the offer. If you come to Wheaton College, we'll pay your tuition. That young man went to Wheaton. He got a degree in anthropology. And in fact, at Wheaton College, there's an institute named for him today. Did you know who that young preacher they invested in was? Billy Graham. Billy Graham's course was charted because people invested in him. They took a chance and they put their money where their mouth was and said, hey, we think God's got plans for you you see how the foundation ties in? Because Billy Graham had been taught, he'd been raised, he had a calling, but it took someone walking alongside him for that foundation to really come to fruition and the building to begin to be built. V. Raymond Edmund was the guy, and as Paul Harvey would tell you, now you know 
the rest of the story. It's a name you're never going to hear because his role wasn't the one on stage. His role was the one of the one who helped form the one on the stage. And so, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these three have been formed since birth with reminders God gave them of who he is, his character, and what he's done for his people. All of those things God's commanded, Passover. It's a reminder that God delivers his people. You look at all these things and it's ground into their heads. It's that point where God wasn't subtle. All of the Old Testament law is basically a giant sledgehammer to pound against the side of your head to remind you, hey, I'm here. I made you. I've been faithful. And I want to know you. If you don't see that in the law, I'm sorry. You might think it's boring. But there's nothing more beautiful than the book of Leviticus. I know, a bunch of you are thinking, man, you know, we used to think you were a sick puppy, Matt, but now we're, you lost me. The reason? All of the law laid a foundation for what Jesus did. And Leviticus paints the most vivid picture. Because in that day of atonement, that is the center linchpin of the book. It talks about what God's people were to do with the lamb. And God told us exactly what he was going to do with his lamb. He laid the foundation and he made sure that we could see. And we see it in these three men's life. Daniel took a stand and they went with it. I mean, the question's simple. Maybe they would have stuck with these dietary restrictions Maybe not, but here's where it winds up. The king interviews them, and among all of them, no one was found equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they began to attend the king. Now, now time out. See where they went. Captives who were being groomed for public service in Babylon. All of a sudden, there is no one equal to these four men who were committed to the God they serve, the God who is one, the God whom they've spoken of, lived for to this point. Now remember, they're not at home. They're not around people who are going to build them up in their faith. But they have each other and they have the foundation that was laid for them. Which is why Austin didn't know it, but he kind of preached my sermon in advance. Within Christ alone and Cornerstone. Because it's all about what God has laid for us and what we're to do on top of it. And that's where we get in our text and the next simple truth. Your faith will be tested. <laughs> Your faith will be tested, period. There, there's no way to get around it. It could be a simple thing. It might be a difficult thing. I can't tell you what it is, but I can guarantee your faith will be tested. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's faith was tested first there in chapter one. Are we gonna be faithful to God or faithful to whatever's going? And then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had their big test. You saw in our text, it starts here. Some Chaldeans, that's the fancy word for Babylonians, took this occasion to come forward and, you notice my emphasis, maliciously accused the Jews. Now, when we talk about malicious, in this case especially, it stems from one simple word, jealousy. These men are jealous of these other men who've been proven to be the best. And so maliciously, they have an intent 
for Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the word maliciously tells us it's not a positive intent. They point out to the king that they're not bowing to his statue. Because the part of the passage I skipped, Nebuchadnezzar set up a giant golden statue, played the music, and everyone was supposed to bow down and worship. But because of the foundation of their faith that they had laid, and as I said, Shema Yisrael, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, they knew there was no other God they could worship. And so they don't bow. And notice, people have noticed it. So they bring it to the king. May the king live forever. You as king have issued a decree that when the, everyone everywhere, when they hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, drum, every kind of music, must fall down and worship the gold statue. Notice, the king says, you must. And then if you see the tail end, whoever doesn't fall down and worship will be thrown into a furnace of blazing fire. Positive reinforcement. <sighs> it's what you do with your kids sometimes. It's that point where you're going to do this. Or, and you say it with a smile, it's so much nicer. But the king sets this up, and these three men, do you notice? They said no. Did they broadcast that they were saying no? No. They didn't go to the king and say, hey, we're never going to do this, so have a great life. No. They followed their God, and they didn't bow. And then these people pointed out, hey, those guys that you put in charge, don't you love it? It always starts with those guys or they're saying or something really random like that. And then they bring it down to the point. They said, these guys won't bow. And so the king, the king is going to have to do something because his orders are being countermanded. And as his orders are countermanded, he had to do something. Because... They knew there's one God, and that's the God of Israel, the God of their fathers, because of the foundation that had been laid from the beginning of their birth until the time they were taken from their home. And they were committed to that. They knew what they believed, and they were committed to living it out. We saw it in verse, or chapter 1. Now in chapter 3, they're being tested to the max. But because they believed and were built on that truth that there was only one God, they would not follow another way. They're being threatened with being thrown in the furnace. And that's the third point here. Standing firm in our faith, it can cause rage. Standing firmly for the truth can cause rage. In our text, we see it. That's the first response from King Nebuchadnezzar. Because these men told him... <laughs> We won't bow. In fact, I love their answer. And that's where we're going to camp for a bit today. But you see this. In a furious rage, Nebuchadnezzar gave orders to bring in Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men are brought before the king. And he's furious. But he gives them a chance. Look at his answer. He asked them, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, is it true that you don't serve my gods or worship the gold statue I've set up? I think Nebuchadnezzar saw the malicious intent. And he's like... Yeah, you're just jealous. Those guys are great. I, I put them in charge of this a long time ago. They've got it. And so he asked the question, and then he gives them the chance. Now, if you're ready, when you hear the sound of all the instruments, he says, bow down and worship. But if you don't, we're going to throw you into a furnace of blazing fire, and who is the God who can rescue you from my power? You hear the pride dripping from that statement? If you know the rest of the story about Nebuchadnezzar, God deals with that. 
And it was in a way that, I, honestly, I don't want to go chew grass and live in the fields, because that's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar in the end of it. You can check a little bit later on in Daniel, and you can see what God did to this man, because he saw God's power on display. It didn't go there. But he gives him this chance. And this is that point, you know, in the building action of a movie, what's going to happen? What are, what are they going to do next? Well, we know because of the foundation they have, they're not going to bow. So let's look at their answer here. You got Shadrach and Meshach in a bed and go say, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar, notice they didn't even say, oh, king. <laughs> Ugh. Starting, starting well if you want to inspire that not furious rage, right? Nebuchadnezzar, we don't need to give you an answer to this question. Whew. You could drop the mic there, right? They're like, we don't need to give you an answer. If the God we serve exists, notice, they're not doing this for themselves. They're doing it for him. If the God we serve exists, then he can rescue us from the furnace of blazing fire. Is there doubt in that sentence? No. They know whom they have believed in. They say he can rescue us, and he can rescue us from the power of you, the king. Still not, O oh, king, there's no fawning. But then here's the sentence that we skip most of the time in kids' Sunday school. But even if he does not rescue us, notice, I went bold and underlined because you have to hear this. Even if he doesn't rescue us, we want you as king to know that we will not serve your gods or worship the gold statue you set up. There's some steel in those there backbones, y'all. Because they're looking at the man who literally commands life and death for them. And they said, you know what? I don't really care what you do to us. We know who we believe in. We're not going to waver in this. And you know, I, their, their belief is firm. But notice, they're not putting a quarter in the slot of their vending machine. They didn't say, our God will save us. They said, we know that our God can save us. But you know what? Even if he doesn't, we know that he is God and that we serve him. They're not backing down. They're not leaving room. And they don't go to the fiery furnace because they believe God is going to save them. They go because of the strength of their faith and their belief in the God who'd called them out of darkness into marvelous light. Nothing else. This passage is not, never been, an excuse to say, well, God's going to deliver me from this. I'm, I'm going to come out of this with more money, and it's going to be better, and my health is going to be... No! God never once says that. Period. I hate to bust your bubble if that's what you want, and I just knocked over my coffee, but it's sealed, so I'm good. Just for the record, that's why you use a lovely sealed mug. Um, oh, yeah, there we go. I had, I had to get back to my box. The steel on their backbone wasn't based on what they thought God would do for them. There is none of this that is based on what God would do for them. It is solely and completely based on their knowledge and their faith of who their God is. That's why they were willing to die. Their foundation was built on rock. And they say, we know he can. But even if he doesn't, can you imagine what the people around them thought as they said this? You've got the people who maliciously accused them probably sitting in the same room. I guarantee you, they were on the verge of clapping. Yeah, exactly. Y'all's going to burn. It's going to be good. 
you got other people who are seeing it going, what, what inspires that kind of faith? How do you get there? There are people who have to be asking questions. But then we see the king's response, because honestly, if you're the man in charge, somebody talks to you like this, this is where you go. Then, lovely Bible text for oh no, then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with rage, and the expression on his face changed toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This is the point where the king goes from, man, these guys are great. They've been some of my best forever. It's just an oversight. You're jealous punks, too. I'm going to kill you. Because that's where the king winds up. And then he gives orders to heat the furnace seven times more than customary. Now, quick disclaimer. Generally, when scripture mentions seven, it's not saying they, like, stoked the furnace seven more times. It's saying they went as hot as they possibly could. Because generally, that's that number of perfection, completion, and the utmost. That's why Jesus later in the New Testament says to forgive 70 times seven. He's not saying 490 times, folks. He's saying to the max. You know, it's kinda, I wish I had echo. Can, can we do that real quick, Austin? Can I get like a reverb? To the max, max, max. But uh, that's what he says, to the max of the fire. And then Nebuchadnezzar, this part I never understood. He gets some of his best soldiers. I'm like, because these, these three guys are obviously the most physical specimens in the world. But he gets his best soldiers because he is so mad he wants to make a statement in everything Nebuchadnezzar does here. He ties them up, and they're going to go throw them in the fire. And it tells us that these men, in all of their clothes, welcome to the Bible, where it tells you the obvious literal things that you already knew, they did not strip them in naked before they threw them down. And yes, I'm from Oklahoma, and I said naked. It's the way it works. She's got to deal with it. But it doesn't strip them down. It says they're thrown in the fire with all their clothes, and then we see the big piece. The flames of the furnace kill these uber-soldiers, that Nebuchadnezzar sends to put him in. They drop dead. And we see Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego fall on the furnace. And I chose to end there on purpose. They're in the furnace of blazing fire. And those of us who grew up in church have heard the story. We know what happens. God delivers them. The king sees there's a fourth person in the fire. And he says he's got the appearance of an angel or a son of a man, a God. And we know that they come out with not a hair singed from a fire that killed the strongest soldiers in Nebuchadnezzar's army. We know these parts. But we want to skip the tough part. We want to skip the even if he doesn't moments. I know I do. I really would have preferred my life to be a nice linear arc going up, you know, happy, good, making more money, nice steady retirement, which is when I realized I really should not have gone into ministry if that was my goal, but it wasn't. And life doesn't work that way. We all know our lives are a series of ups, downs, in-betweens, and everything around it. But we often rail at the injustice of what we perceive people doing to us because of who we are. But it's not about the injustice done to us. It's about the injustice done to the one who stands in our place. Because if you recall Jesus in the New Testament, when he talked about people being tested, you know what he said? He didn't say everybody would like you, be a great guy, be like, you know, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and gosh darn it, people like you. No, that was not Jesus' answer. 
Jesus told his disciples, the world hates me. And if they hate me, why do you expect anything different? Especially when we stake our lives on the foundation of truth. Because God has given the only truth that matters. We sang it this morning. It's not about who you are. Never has been. Because God knew from the beginning of time every spot that you would screw up. He knew your every foible and every sin. He knew mine. And honestly, if you think about that, I kind of hate that. I'd really rather he didn't. I'd prefer he left those things that were done in the dark in the dark so I didn't have to worry about them or deal with them. But he doesn't because he knew us before we did them. And he called us before we did them. As a matter of fact, he set the course where his son would die in our place before we committed the sins that Jesus was dying for. And in the same truth, every test that we encounter, God knew about. And God has a plan from. Might not feel like it. And testing bites. I'd pass in a heartbeat. But it's for God's glory and our good that we pass through them. And in this case, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were delivered. But they were willing to burn, knowing their God could deliver them. And even if he didn't, it's who they were because of who loved them first. But the end of this passage is a simple truth that living our faith creates change every time. Living our faith creates change. In the video, as you saw, Scott showed us about mission agencies and the way we react to crisis. Loving someone unconditionally in ways that they don't expect shows them a Jesus who is deeper, wider, fuller, and more vibrant than anything you can find on a page. It's a lived faith that we are called to walk into. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived their faith, so much so that they were willing to burn in a furnace, which, like I said, I'll pass, but that's where God put them. And the result of this, they go into the furnace, they come back out unsinged, and you know what the king says? This king, who was so sure of himself, and who his pride said, what God can stand against me? That Nebuchadnezzar, as they walk out of the furnace, says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come forth, because there is no God like yours who has delivered. And the next chapter, in chapter 4, you can go read Nebuchadnezzar's declaration. There is one most high God. The king, whose pride blinded him to everything, has seen God because of three men who would not bow question I'm asking us this morning, church. What does our faith show the world around us? Because faith is not something to be held in my heart, but something to be walked out with my two feet, my two hands, and my tongue. And just a disclaimer, I don't do that as well as I wish I could. I'm sure you don't either. But the truth is, what are we showing people about the Jesus Christ who died in our place in how we live our faith. Are we standing loudly for the truth, but living in a way that shows people we don't care about the truth? 
Are we shouting for what we believe, but living in a way that points others in an opposite direction? That's the dichotomy. That's why for years I've told people who tell me the simple question, ask them why they don't come to church. I've had hundreds tell me because of all the hypocrites. And because I'm a loving, kind individual, I tell them, well, we can always use one more. Come on out. But that's the simple truth. Who I am is not a result of me, but a result of what God has done in me. Who you are this morning is not a result of your genetics. It's not a result of your experiences, but it's a result of what God is doing in you through those. Because we serve a God who designed genetics We serve a God who knit us together in our mother's womb. We serve a God who is the only beacon of truth in the world. In fact, it's a simple statement that all truth is God's truth because he is truth. And if we stand firm on that foundation, then what is there? There is one God. And there is one way to salvation. And that's only in the shed blood of Jesus Christ told you I loved Leviticus. That's where it is. John, when he saw Jesus, said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Living our faith and standing firm for that is because we know who we've been. We know what we've done, but we know what God is doing in us. And therefore, when he sees us, it's not about me anymore. But the shed blood of his son, Jesus Christ, that has covered me. And Corinthians sums up the gospel in one sentence. God made Jesus, who knew no sin, to become, not to carry, to become sin on my behalf, so that I might be the righteousness of God in him. God took all of the stuff I have done And he took it out of me and he put it into his only son so that I could live in church. That truth applies to you. Jesus stands in your place and he has called us. Is the old hymn, I've had this hymn stuck in my head since I started this. You might know it, but it's that tagline at the end of the refrain. I know whom I have believeth. And I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Do you know who you believe in? Do you know who he is and do you know what he's done for you? That word gospel is good news. And if we know the Jesus who stood in our place, how can we not live our faith from the joy of that knowledge that who I am is not who I've been. But it's Jesus in my place. Are you living your faith in a way that creates change so our community sees it? If you know me, I work for Frito-Lay and I see a ton of people in stores. I see many of you. I stand on the aisle and I throw a bunch of chips. I lovingly tell people I'm a merchant of obesity. Thank you. No. No, I peddle snacks. But in doing so, I get the chance to interact with people. And in interacting with people, you have two choices. You can be a jerk, or you can be someone who shows people Christ. And I'll be honest, there are some mornings at, after being at work between 1 and 3 a.m., 
Around five or six, I'm not the happiest camper in the world still. Who knew? But I get a chance to show people the Jesus in me. And my reminder every day is, what am I doing with God? With what God has done in me? Am I keeping it? Or am I so convinced of what God has done for me that I'm willing to burn? It's a question, church. What are you doing with what God has done in you? And do you believe enough to put your money where your mouth is, so to speak, and say, even if he doesn't deliver me, I'll burn because I know who my God is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the fact that you've called us out of darkness into your marvelous light, that you made us, shaped us, and molded us into your image. And that when you look at us after we have been covered in the blood of your son, that you no longer see us, but you see Jesus in our place and you see our righteousness that's not ours, but is your son's. This morning we pray that you would strengthen our hearts and strengthen our resolve to live our faith in this world so others would see you. May we be a light in the darkness. May people see your truth in how we live, how we love, and in who you have made us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.